This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My very special guest today is Shri Iyer, Lead Portfolio Manager and Managing Director and Head of iCubed Investments at Guardian Capital LP. Shri, welcome back. It's great to see you again and catch up with you at this pivotal moment in the economy, monetary policy, and markets. What's new with you and, and how are you? I'm here again. Glad to be back. Well, it looks like every time we talk to each other, something big is happening in the market. So for sure. Going good. I think since we last spoke, um, a lot of the things we discussed have come to fruition. So it's kind of a really good point of time to kind of reconnect with you and trying to get you some um, ideas as to what we're thinking and what we're seeing, where things are going. So really looking forward to our chat today. Yeah, um, me as well. Very excited because, I, you know, I think we're, you know, as I mentioned, we're in this, we're at this, what seems to be like a turning point or a pivotal moment in markets. And, you know, this meltdown of SVB, it's really highlighted you know, the, 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 the story that people tell that the Fed is almost always responsible for breaking the economy once, you know, we, we, once it engages in a rate hiking uh, regime. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly, that's exactly what we're starting to see the signs of, right? Yeah, I, I would say the average person sees a bipolar response in the market right now by the Fed. Um, My take is the Fed, in my opinion, actually is having a very measured response to the market cycle. Um, The real risk of market happened in the blockchain Bitcoin side. If if there was no Bitcoin, things could be much, much worse and things could have precipitated much more because a lot of the risk capital went into that side of the market um, response. So. With the unwinding of the Bitcoin phase, and you saw the meltdown in that phase with um, with the, with a blow up in a couple of exchanges on that side, the market got a taste of what a de-risking really looks like. Despite that, as we say, "Don't fight the Fed" is the common adage on in the statement. Um, I think the Fed is still committed to reducing inflation. And I don't think so. The market should construe this bailout, however ad hoc it has been, to be a signal towards any kind of pivot to say that there's going to be a backstop to a measured response to the market. So about three months ago, the standard response to the market was the subconscious bailout was going to come up from a pivot. Now, with persistent inflation, this CPI just came out today, and you saw that the inflation has been persistent across virtually every category you can imagine. Other right. than used, yeah, car, yeah. used car sales is down about 2%, big D. So what you're seeing here is persistent inflation, which is what the Fed's targeting. What the Fed is saying on one side is that we're going to keep going at that target at any cost. But the definition of cost is not a bailout for some kind of failing institution, but more about protecting the average investor because of a contagion response to consumption and the consumer in general. So I don't think so. The Fed has taken a bucket to a tsunami yet. That's my two cents. I think this response to... SVB and anything else is actually a good decision by the Fed because you want to take the air out of the balloon in a measured way as much as possible and not pop it. Yeah. So the narrative of a hard landing versus a soft landing and all of those kind of um, conversations in my world are not really relevant. What I'm trying to say here is that do not assume the Fed is in a bipolar mentality here. It's quite determined and measured in keeping interest rates high. And the fallout of high interest rates for longer, high inflation for longer, is a compounding effect on the economy. And so the Fed's got a much more longer horizon than the average human being has right now. 
And if we can understand the Fed doesn't look at it from a day-to-day basis or a month-to-month basis, but looks at it as a structural change in the way free money in the market needs to be taken out, then I think the action that the Fed did is quite measured, in my opinion. I could be contrary. Yeah, I, but I, 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 I mean, my, my thoughts on it is, you know, you, you really have to applaud the speed with which they reacted to this matter. Um, so let, let's, let's, let's take a pause on that part of the conversation because I want to change gears just for a moment. Um, I've been dying to ask you about your take on chat GPT wow. and generative AI in general. I mean, when, when that happened, actually you were one of the you know first people that I thought of because we've had so many conversations about, um, you know, surrounding, uh, artificial intelligence. You must've been beside yourself when, when AI took center stage in the tech race this year. What's, what's your take on it? Oh, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's very real. And for us, we are really excited uh, in the sense, obviously chat GPT came out in November and it took the world by storm, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's the, um, it's the, um, what I call it, the, uh, poster child for artificial intelligence for all the wrong reasons. I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> but it's basically a LLM model, large language model. And the biggest thing that chat GPT did is to shake up the world beyond the abstract sense of what AI is, is because suddenly the average person is actually touching AI in a very, very uh, cognitive way. So the evolution of what you call humans and bots merging, ChatGPT is the first instance of that, which could be kind of overt versus being covert. So right. even an average person, my, my, my dad, who's 80 years old, was asking ChatGPT a question, which is an 80-year-old when who was around, when there was no computers, is now chatting with a bot and trying to get an answer. So you could tell how profound this response is. And so if you look at it from a philosophical sense, the 1800s was all about mechanization, water, and steam. Then you saw the 1900s where you saw mass production, electric power, and turbines, and assembly lines. Then in 2000, you saw computers, automation, electronics all emerge. 2000 is not that far away. And then you saw 2010. (laughs) You saw Internet of Things, networking, and machine learning, which is what we got into in 2017, 2018. And now you're looking at ChatGPT, regenerative AI, human bot reaction, collaborative AI, cognitive AI, prescriptive AI. So it's going at a pace that guys like us even can't keep up with it. So as someone who implements artificial intelligence in investment decision-making, I think the emergence of um, regenerative AI, which is more a prescriptive, predictive type of uh, model that is using natural language processing as, as a core base, um, is quite profound. We, we use NLP data for new sentiment analytics and right. uh, gauging the tone of a news article and aggregating the tone of the market. We do all of that. But regenerative AI is, 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 is kind of the next, next level of, I would say, uh, inferencing, for lack of words. And let me just kind of um, simplify it in the sense that most machine learning, the guys like what we do, by the way, I don't profess any knowledge in the chat GPT space. I'm just giving you a context of what data scientists like us do. Most data but you do understand, I mean, but Sri, you do understand how artificial intelligence oh, very much works. So. Very yeah. much so. So if you look at what we do with machine learning and AI, uh, deep learning and all aspects is, a lot of the thing is about processing data, curating data, uh, what you call feature engineering data, feature selection. Um, and that's where 90% of all the work happens. Once you train the models and then you give it today's information, it can infer right. a, a solution from what we have trained it with. ChatGPT has made this whole thing fully upside down. It's crazy. Now you're going to see society use chat GPT to infer while the speed of processors, the number of GPUs being used and TPUs being used, um, GPUs are graphical processing units, TPUs are tensor processing units. Um, the size that this has scaled out to now, you're going to see an upside down response in the world where 70 to 80% of AI is not going to be used, now going to be used for inferring 
and only 30% is going to be used for training. So that's a monumental juxtaposition in in a matter of two years. So guys like us are looking like a carpet's been pulled out of our feet right now to figure out where's the trade-off between compiling and inferring or training and inferring. So the ratio of training data and inferring solutions has been put upside down in the world of chat GPT. So it's open source. You, you got uh, programming languages like PyTorch now that are coming out where the new generation, the teenagers can use now where it's going to be a common language that you can use for AI training across any processor, whether it's the GPU, CPU, TPU. So you're going to have a common language of training data and inferring knowledge. So It's been a little bit of a dramatic shift in the world of democratization of artificial intelligence. That innate feeling is what is creating such a big buzz in ChatGPT right now. Well, sure. I think I think a lot of people are looking at ChatGPT, you know, especially in the content creation world, um, you know, to to make them better writers. Provide, you know, like like if you're writing an essay, you can ask ChatGPT for an outline for that essay. You know, you can you can you know it 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 certainly uh, helps as a creation, you know, as a creativity tool as well because it it you know it has the ability to go into areas of thought that you might not have thought about yourself if you're using it. But I, I think I think that's interesting what you said though about how you know people are using you know you, you content is being created. And inferred using ChatGPT, and then it's being published. But does that mean? And and so, but I think what you meant was that because I heard I I did hear some um, you know rumblings about this in 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 interviews that I've watched about it. But I think one of the points was that was that you know if the future if if in the you know as things progress, obviously in the future, ChatGPT or the AI behind Chat you know the the uh, ChatGPT is training itself on 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 bad information then that bad information will trickle into new information down the road absolutely Tra- right? training data is everything if you uh, if you look <laughs> at the source data for chat gpt it's the digital universe that's been around for 30 to 50 years now and we can all make our own personal judgment as to what the digital universe looks like so chat gpt learns from the narrative of digital data and digital data always has a narrative yeah. because news is always intertwined with opinions and facts. And so, so to treat does that, narrative. Sorry, does that mean that, does that mean ultimately that chat GPT will wind up training itself? Chat GPT already trained itself. <laughs> yeah. So that's what regenerative AI is in the sense it yeah. is using its data. Re, yeah. Regenerative. That's right. I mean, so, there's generative, which is, which is from scratch, but then. Regenerative is where that stuff is being recycled. Absolutely. Right? So yeah. it, it is detecting false positives through a feedback loop of humans. So when it gives you a question, when you give it a question and you, it gives you an answer, and if you respond to ChatGPT that your answer is biased, that's when you get the true answer from ChatGPT, not the first answer. The yeah. second answer from ChatGPT is much more accurate than the first answer because it is regenerative. It it it. Once you question its bias, it will go back and recheck to see it has bias or not. And if it has bias, it'll come back and respond to you saying that, yes, that could be bias, but. So that gives you that caveat so that you as a human being can be intelligent enough to not take it at face value, but use it as an opinion piece or an information response that you can then make your own opinion upon. Interesting. Versus very, just, very interesting. just reading the first thing it send, tells you. Uh, reading the first thing it tells you while it is quite accurate, I don't think so involves a degree of intelligence. Probing chat GPT to get a more detailed response is where the real learning comes in. And chat GPT appreciates it because your feedback loop is what it's using to learn and make it better. Right. But what, I mean, if you, if you just consider the simple adage of garbage in, garbage out, um, you gotta be, you gotta be careful. You do have to question the results you have, but the fun, but that's interesting that you can actually question the AI you sure itself. Can. You sure can in, in its right. Yes, and so so users are going to have to become increasingly careful about where the information is coming from, and and I mean it's it, it's almost it, like well, I don't want to say it's it's you know it's 
in a way it, it's human like if all if if all we're caught in is a feedback loop you know um of of bad information you know like f- for example fake news um there are entire you know cohorts of civilization that are that are you know caught up in the fake news uh thinking that that's reality or because they're visiting the same sites every day they're visiting the same they're visiting the same sources. They're, well, you know, they're it's, it's seeing on, it in on their both feed. sides, right? It's both on the left yeah. and the right, and that's where yeah. the bias kicks in, right? When when the narrative is only right or only left, that's where the problem is. And ChatGPT uh, right now will be biased on the narrative in the market per se, as to whether much more about left is being written or much more about right is being written. It doesn't have that cognitive intelligence yet to say that yeah. I want to stay unbiased unless you probe further. But I would say that we're missing the big point here. This naive conversation about the bias that ChatGPT bring completely takes away the revolutionary aspect of ChatGPT. Where ChatGPT really comes into handy or comes, and it's going to be a dramatic changes, is in software development. Uh, you're going to have software development where code's going to be written for uh, training data. That means semiconductors will be getting more and more powerful. It's going to be used where you're going to have such massive big data because of ChatGPT. It's going to change data centers uh, where storage is going to become a massive, massive uh, growth area in the market where, where are you going to store all this data? It's got it, it, when people say it's in the cloud, it's not really in the cloud. It's in hardware <laughs> sitting somewhere. Uh, cybersecurity, yeah. right? ChatGPT can now generate lifelike emails with content to do cyber crimes and cyber attacks. It can write uh, uh, codes and viruses codes that you can implant somebody. And it has all that because virus code is available on the World Wide Web. So it can learn from that and build you a code to destroy right. something. You know, you're looking at basically uh, search engines in the future. Um, right now, we are doing some basics like Google searches, but tomorrow it's going to replicate the Googles where you're going to have a chatbot. So you're not going to really type anything. You're going to chat with ChatGPT or Google slash right. Bing or BERT or anything like that. You're just going to have a conversation and ask a question. And it's going to give you an answer, not, only, not in fact in typing. It might even give you a voice response to, to um, boy, Space Odyssey 2000 comes to mind. It's uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. fiction becoming reality in front of our eyes <laughs> in our conversation. Another area is communication, your space, right? Uh, writing. It can write a full textbook on any topic now. Right. Um, media, content generation, news articles, social media posts, uh, marketing, um, story writing, script writing of movies. All of this can be done by ChatGPT in a very precise, concise, close form solution. If you, as a domain expert, can give it some basic parameters and tell it exactly what you need. Then you're looking at music, right? You're looking at... <clears throat> generate melodies, uh, critique music, could become a critic. Um, It can even write music. uh, If you tell it that these are the topics and these are the kind of parameters, a legal, big, highly disruptive chat GPT, you're going to see it can write legal documents. It could write dissertations. It could uh, even pass board exams for legal exams. So you're looking at a disruptive response there. And I'm not stopping there. Look at healthcare. Yeah. Healthcare, telemedicine. You're talking to a doctor. Tomorrow, you're going to be talking to a bot giving you prescriptive medication. You're going to look at it as a remote monitoring system for a doctor. The doctor will know through the chatbot is if this guy taking his medicine or not, and it'll give a prescriptive response to the the patient. Um, Pharmaceuticals, drug screening, pre-discovery, drug discovery, process analysis, probability of success in drug discovery, all that's going to go through these kind of uh, frameworks. Uh, you saw what happened to banks, right? Predictive analysis, credit default, consumer default. All of these things could be used in a more regenerative sense or on a predictive basis based on what's being written or what could be solved. And aerospace engineering, fuel optimization. Uh, unfortunately, defense contractors could use it for very bad things, chat GPT. Yeah. So you're looking at much, much more that chat GPT or regenerative AI can impact than just the common, very myopic response of uh, politics or left-right opinion or anything like that. That's, in my opinion, a very, very small component of the ecosystem that ChatGPT exposes human civilization to. 
Again, it's my opinion. Amazing. Amazing. Truly amazing. I, I, I thanks for sharing that. I, I hadn't even, uh, you know, I haven't even gone that far in, in my, um, my own reading, uh, as far as, you know, all the, that, that laundry list of, of, um, both, I think both blessings and, and, and dangers, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can see where, where, you know, we can, we could use, uh, you know, or our children could use chat GPT to stand on the shoulders of giants, but what do they do with it once they're there? And, and what, you know, what, what's, what, what are the, what are the ranges of outcomes that are possible, um, from that? Because, you know, you know, it's going to be both used for a very productive means. And on the other side, it's also going to be used for, for probably destructive means as well. Like anything else in society over a thousand years. So, uh, as humans, we can't question the future nor should we live in the past, nor should we live in the moment. We just have to accept the inevitable when it happens. If you do that, then you will not see confrontation. But if you always are in all, all defense up in front of you and you always see everything as a threat, then you're going to confront things. Rather than confronting, if you accept the inevitable, I think society will evolve much more. You're going to have some bad things, but you're going to have much, much more good things come out than bad things. But there's never yeah. been a situation that any evolution in civilization always resulted only in good. There's always been bad with good. But that's, that's nature and that's the way evolution works. So I would say accepting the inevitability in the world of artificial intelligence should be the baseline norm. And that will help civilizations and people evolve in a better way. In our world, in our investment industry, uh, Artificial intelligence is still nascent, um, uh, but guys like us who yeah, are not, not, you know what? Now, now you know why I was dying to ask you. <laughs> I was dying to ask, like specifically, I was dying to ask you about about ChatGPT, well, about AI, I because think, because yeah, it's very liberating. Know, it's very liberating for me. Yeah and my team especially, is because investment decisions are now being made with a lot more objectivity and a lot more sense of inevitability rather than just prognosticating the future and having a lot of error. So the acceptance rate of decision-making exponentially grows if you accept technology and the evolution of what's going on in the market right now. Before we get to talking about investing, uh, I think it's only fitting to introduce you to those listening who don't know you. So bear with me. No problem. <laughs> um, Shri joined. Now you'll understand why I wanted to talk to Shri about AI. Um, Shri joined Guardian Capital LP in 2001, has well over 25 years of experience managing quantitative investments and risk management. He was instrumental in the development and implementation of Guardian Capital's proprietary systematic strategies, which subsequently led to the creation of the iCubed investments team. Shri's expertise in guiding the overall development and implementation of systematic strategies for the firm is unparalleled. Shri and his team manage multi-billion dollar investment portfolios using a combination of AI-based predictive models to make investment decisions. Shri has, through his leadership, pioneered the application of machine learning and deep learning models at Guardian Capital LP since 2018 and continues to research and innovate in the space of feature engineering selection while managing an all-star team of data scientists. Shri, in my opinion, is one of the most experienced investment professionals in systematic investment strategy in the business. If Shri wasn't in investment management, I suspect in an alternate reality, he would have his own tech startup. So, So Shri, let's let's set the table for our conversation about uh investing. Um because your your area of specialty is in the uh is in dividend investing. Um how can investing in by the way, was that was that a, a fitting introduction? That was a fit it's a humbling uh introduction, I would say. Um and it's funny you mentioned uh, the dividends in a sense. Obviously, I'm not a 
we don't do only dividends. We do growth dividends. We recently yeah. launched a hedge fund too. But you're right. The 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 relevancy of how you present it was amazing. I mean, it's like my whole career of 35 years just flashed in front of my eyes very quickly. So <laughs> thank you. It was. Uh, well, you're 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 welcome, Sri. I, I I think one of the things that um you know that we've that we I love about you is that you're you're very you you are humble. You're modest. You're humble. Uh, especially given the things that you're doing. Um, I told you, I manage a team of all-star data scientists. They humble me every day. Some well, of the, and you're, and you're, and you're so in the team I can imagine. Yeah. You're so quick to, you're always, you're always very quick to, to call it a team effort, which well, is, is also uh, adm admirable. So, um, I'm sure your team loves it as well. Um, so let, let, let's get to the discussion about investing. Cause I think, I think in the context of what we've talked about at the very beginning about SVB, about, you know, the, some of the changes that are taking place in the economy, uh, whether or not, um, you know, whether or not rate, you know, the rate hiking regime is going to continue or pause or, um, well, and we'll get to that. Um, how can investing, like it's a turbulent period. I mean, this past year has been turbulent for investors. Um, how can investing in dividend paying stocks, help investors defend their portfolios in a turbulent market? I'll, I'll keep it brief, some of these uh, answers, because um, the practicality of your questions are very profound here. So to answer your question, how do dividend-paying stock help investors in turbulent markets, what comes to mind is low volatility, downside capture, cash flow visibility, and most important, opportunity to improve yield at cost. These are some basic responses that could be tagged and achieved by dividend investing during turbulent markets. So clearly when markets are undecided in their direction or the magnitude or the variance of their direction and path is violated, people look for some kind of downside protection, some kind of a lighthouse as to how to moor their boats to. And I think dividend investing is that lighthouse. Now, one of the biggest things that people do not perceive is the opportunity to improve yield at cost. That is, if you are buying a security that pays a coupon at X price, and over the years you have held that security, then Whatever the coupon is today, whatever the payout on that stock is today, if you divide it by the original price of the stock, your coupon is significantly higher than taking what it's paying today by the price it's today. So when you see a turbulent market and you see weakness in the stock market where the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, it is a great opportunity to buy dividend-based portfolios because you can lower your cost bases and increase right. your yield at cost. That is true wealth building for the long term. Amazing. That's a great point. I, I, I think, I think, you know, you know, we saw, we saw, you know, on Monday of this week and today's March 14th, but so we're talking about March 13th, 23, um, you know, we saw the regional bank stocks in the U S take, you know, basically take a, you know, get a kicking. Uh, because of the, you know, all the uncertainty surrounding the Silicon Valley Bank meltdown, and um, or maybe it's not a meltdown, but collapse. Um, and and so you know, it's the it's the old cockroach analogy, right? If the, mm -hmm. there's never just there's never just one, right? And and so so you know, some people have pointed to you know Janet Yellen basically saying that that you know we're going to do whatever it takes to guarantee all depositors their their deposits you know so suddenly you know the $250,000 FDIC limit went out the window and now you know what's what's being implied through that statement is that 100% of deposits will be guaranteed by the by the you know by the US government whether it's the fed or the treasury i'm not sure uh the treasury i guess um so uh you can see why, I mean, I can see why like in a, in a turbulent period, just to circle back to your answer, uh, investors would, 
immediately start looking for companies that have, you know, wider moats, companies that are, you know, have steady or growing dividends. Uh, and they would, they would also at the same time look for companies whose moats have shrunk and say, you know, this company might cut its dividend. All right. But, and, and that those are qualitative measures of, of businesses, but so it, it, very interesting. The same way depositors were feared that, you know, they were, they would pull their money out of tier, you know, lower tier banks and, and, and put them into tier one banks. Yesterday, you know, yesterday, Correct. I don't know if they're, yes. you know, um, there's, you know, there's been throughout the day, there's been a string of interviews with, with regional bank CEOs, um, you know, and they're not all suffering, you know, runs on, on their, on their deposits, but you can see that same mentality happens in the market where, where investors, um, default back to the highest quality companies, uh, that they can, I mean, depends on, on how you define quality, of course, but, um, dividend paying stocks obviously have always held a very, uh, dear position in the market. Um, so why is it important? I mean, I, I don't know if I asked, I'm answering the question that I'm about to ask with with my chatter but why is it important to focus on finding consistent companies with proven track records of growing their dividends year over year and uh, did i did i did, i think i might have just answered the question i just you, asked you did but, but let me give you a slightly different context to that in the sense yeah. <laughs> what dividend growth does is it signals secular viability of a co company's business that's all it does it it gives you a secular viability tag Consistent cash flow personifies a consistent company. So when somebody says management is consistent or a company is consistent, it has to be reflected in the cash flow. It allows for a clean evaluation. When I'm valuing companies to own through our big data DCF models, if I have secular cash flow and clean cash flow, I can value the company better so it leaves less error for me. Uh, and it also allows or better market imbalance detection. That is, if I can value a company on secular cash flow, when the market overreacts or underreacts, I could then analyze the true valuation of the stock. So when you, when you look at it in that perspective, um, one has to be very, very careful in not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, is what's happening is, if you look at what happened at SVB and the market and why I have a contrarian response to actually supporting the Fed's intervention is because uh, you have the asset side and the liability side. Um, the deposits are now getting have to be paid much higher, at about what four four and a half percent on on the short term deposit side. Right. And in those days, you you were paying you're getting paid twenty five bips or fifty bips. So there's been a demonstrative jump in the liability asset mismatch right now. And so what happened here is to create net interest margin and to be viable as a, as a profitable business, most of these banks went on the asset side into very long duration assets. And when I say long duration assets, you can go from uh, 10 year treasuries all the way to some kind of private equity um, right. uh, agreement on a lending agreement. Now what's happening here is in the last six months to nine months, with the short end of the yield curve and the rate starting to go from 25 bips to a target rate of around 5%, a lot of these 10-year uh, um, duration assets are now under the water. But my question is, just because a 10-year bond is under the water, does it make it a bad bond? It doesn't. Yeah. Because at yield to maturity, you're going to get your money back. <clears throat> right. So what's happening here, the Fed intervention was not to secure bad assets. Fed's intervention was actually to secure good assets, which are underwater. So this is almost like a repo in the sense that the Fed is saying that we're going to guarantee customer deposits so that the customers don't make a run on the bank. Because if you right. take the money out of the bank, the banks will be forced to sell 10-year bonds when they don't want to be selling it. Yeah. So... Yeah. So, I mean, that was that, but that's good, right? That is very, very good. It's a great plan because it, it, you, by, by protecting depositors, you're protecting everybody. You're protecting the duration yeah. of an asset by protecting short-term depositors from running, making a run on the bank. So this is not a bailout. 
Yeah, this so is a, a measured intervention like a, for protecting exactly. the duration of an asset class. Now, if you went and gave your money to some private equity, which is not going to do any make any cash flow for the next 30 years, that's a risky asset that should never have been on the balance sheet beyond a certain percentage for the deposit. That kind of risk should not be bailed out. But the problem here was happening was that people were making a run on mid-cap, small-cap banks, and a lot of the assets are sitting in long-duration fixed-income bonds, and that could create a liquidity problem in the market. And to avoid that, the Fed guaranteeing deposits, in my opinion, is a very, very good thing. It's not a bailout. It's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's stopping uh, irrational behavior. I think I think they've actually they've actually avoided using the word bailout, haven't they? I mean, correct. Well, it's it's, it's more of a stopgap, or yeah. Banks that have massive liability mismatches will fail. Yeah, but not at the cost of clients making a run out of the banks, but because eventually the mismatches will play out in their earnings and their liability. To let bad banks fail, but not let all good banks fail. That's the main thing, and. The separation of mega cap banks to mid cap, there are a lot of good banks in the mid cap, small cap space too. Unfortunately, if this contagion had moved further down the pipe, you could see a lot of small good banks also get destroyed. And that's extremely unhealthy for an economy like the United States, which yeah. has thousands of banks, not like Canada, which has five. Well, banks. that's it. <laughs> that's one of the, uh, that's really one of the huge differences between, between us and them, right? Correct. Is the is the uh, the regional you know all of the regional and smaller banks that they have the lifeblood the lifeblood of uh, microfinancing into small businesses is done by regional banks, not by large yeah. banks. Interesting. So just to to put things um, just put things back into perspective, um, what just just so that you know investors, I, I think you you touched on it at the beginning at the beginning of our conversation about dividends. Um, with regards to the coupon and the coupon from dividend stocks and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but what share of total return of the S and P 500 is attributable to dividends over the last 20 years? Yeah. If you say 30 years in 1970s, yeah. between dividends, buybacks, which is money being taken back and debt reduction what we call dividend yield plus buyback yield plus debt reduction, which is called shareholder yield. That is, the shareholder gets his yield and his cash back. This represents about two-thirds or slightly more than two-thirds of the compounding of equity returns or since the 1970s. Two-thirds. Yeah. So when you're capturing dividends, which is a, a very large part, um, almost 70 to 80% of that two-thirds, uh, with some very strong buybacks, and very little debt on balance sheets, you're able to capture a very significant part of the very reason why you should be owning equities in the first place. Yeah, and that seems to be really an under underappreciated aspect of of investing in stocks is is the dividends. But I I think I think just you know I wanted to I don't know I, I think I wanted to make a quick point because we went straight to dividends, and I know that's not all you do, but but it really, it, it's kind of like synonymous with, you know, our conversation about, you know, um, how the treasury has promised depositors that their their deposits are safe. Um, that looks after everything that comes after it. Everything that's related to those deposits, such as the duration of the bonds in, in the held to maturity portfolio or the available for sale portfolios in the banks. Correct. But, and I'm not quite exactly that way. Maybe it's, I'm, I'm making a terrible uh, connection there, but, but the, the connection I see with, with dividends is that if you, if you, uh, if you focus on dividend investing as a core equity strategy, um, by focusing on the quality of dividends and, and, you know, dividend growers, companies with, with, um, you know, a long dividend history and a, and a history of growing their dividend, uh, aren't you in effect taking care of, you know, some of the more important aspects of building a quality portfolio of equities? Absolutely. So yeah, if we can go to so if you, finance 101, 
as a core principle. Absolutely. If you look at CAPM, capital assets pricing model, look at what the Fed did here in guaranteeing short-term deposits. When you start with capital asset pricing model, you start with money market or money, a three-month. A three-month table or money market is the most sacred instrument you can own. If you start making a run on banks and as a mid-cap bank, you cannot even be comfortable owning a three-month table at a local bank, then anything beyond that is suspect for you. So what's happened as interest rates started to rise is, in general, people have dramatically reduced their duration, gotten out of fixed income, gotten out of Bitcoin and in general, even equities, and are sitting with copious amounts of cash in the asset allocation right right now. And on on that, you're giving headlines that people are making a run on banks. Can you imagine the spike in implied risk premia in short-term bonds if you start making run on bank, bank deposits? That is extremely risky because the short end of the CAPM line has to have an implied safety mechanism always built into it. Otherwise, it has a dramatic cascading response to risk further up the CAPM curve. So this approach by the Fed actually kind of stopped a tsunami of credit risk mounting up the, 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 the CAPM curve in a very yeah. aggressive way. Um, the correction in, in fixed income last year would look like a picnic if we start seeing long dura- dura- duration assets start to uh, default. You're seeing it in private equity right now. There's no bid for exits. So there's a lot of um, underwater private equity exits now sitting on big firms and big conglomerates right now that cannot get out. And so, and they don't mark to market these products. So it gets marked to market only when you go to market to exit. So these unrealized losses sitting on balance sheets right now um, could have a devastating effect on capitalism in general. And it all starts with the short end of the CAPM line. And so what the Fed did here is to make sure that the cash is protected. The problem with cash at 4% is when inflation is at 6%, you still have a negative rate of return. And I'm trying my best, and our job at investment managers is to make sure that people should not get afraid of duration, but embrace duration the right way. And so jumping from cash to dividends which is still equities, not a bond, gives you a very good conduit to capture some duration visibility. A McDonald's or a Johnson Johnson or an AstraZeneca um, gives you that long visibility of secular cash flow with a three to three and a half percent coupon. And that's as good as it gets in this market when you're afraid that you're not getting your deposit back tomorrow from a bank local around your corner. So there is a true value added to make sure that the short end of the CAPM is protected at any cost and give people a viable response to move away from cash. Because at 6% persistent high inflation, um, it's actually giving a negative rate of return. So you do need some duration bets to get appreciation along with a payout. And dividends play a very, very important role in that transition between safe deposits and risky duration. Dividends play the mid-space extremely well in this market. I cannot explain it any further than this. It's as <laughs> you did a great job. You, you you did a terrific job there. Um, so uh, does does systemic risk does, or does the potential for systemic risk in the financial system make dividend payers and growers more attractive? I'll I'll only answer it with one word: yes. Okay, great. So um, how does inflation, assuming that it remains sticky for the foreseeable future, um, how does it impact fixed income and equity portfolios? And what is the difference in how they're affected? I think, again, these are my opinions and my analysis of data. I think persistent inflation is significantly worse than inflation. And people do not differentiate between inflation and persistent inflation. If I have to ask an economist a question, I'll ask him, please define inflation to me as being persistent or not. 
if inflation is not persistent, I actually like it because it allows us to, it acts as a transfer mechanism from a company to the user, and you could still make money if inflation is not persistent. The problem with persistent inflation is it eats into real income. Right. As the compounding negative aspects of high inflation is never really perceived by the market or by the individual. So when you're not perceiving the compounding of persistent inflation, um, you start seeing risk. Show me inflation and I'll show you rising rates. Show me rising rates and I'll show you credit risk. So that's how I see inflation, if it stays sticky, impacting the market. So this credit risk perception that's evolving in the market right now and ended with the Fed intervening to a degree is all a logical culmination or cumulative response to persistent inflation. Yeah, that's the key. I think I think the what I got from from you know um, your response is that it's persistent inflation that the Fed is hell bent on tackling. Correct. It's not inflationary spikes or no events. It's in you know um, interesting, very interesting. I, I you know it's the sticky components that they're that they're really focused on. Right. There were there, at the peak of COVID in Mar March 2020, there were a cumulative 1,000 rate cuts around the world since subprime. And we expect all that to go away in a matter of two years. <laughs> There's still well, enough liquidity know, in the market that yeah. is driving uh, prices up. There's enough um, uh, lack of labor force participation that is keeping wages high and unemployment low. These are all structural issues that just don't turn on a dime after giving a thousand rate cuts for 10 years. It takes time to bleed excess out of a system. And what the Fed is trying to do is to make sure it's done on an orderly basis. I think, I think they've established that. I think, I think, you know, because investors at large are, you know, uh, not very, not, not pleased, obviously. Um, with, with the outcome of Fed intervention, you know, that, that, that's why you have this, uh, you know, on one side you have folks who, who are accepting of what the Fed is doing and understand it like you, uh, and on the other side is, is, you know, the other, uh, other cohorts of, of opinion on the, on Fed policy that, that are in disagreement with it. Well, if I may phrase it, I'd rather be wrong yes. and save my money than right and lose all my money. Do you find it interesting before I, um, I find it interesting that we went from there is no alternative to what almost feels like the opposite. And not, not that there, I mean, now there's lots of alternatives, of course. I don't think that, I, um, I don't think that, that, you know, we have to stop investing in equities and, and, and start strictly investing in, in short duration. But, um, you know, you know, in a strange way like this, you know, in, you know, people for, for example, pulling and let's 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 you know let's let's say this x you know this svb thing that just happened but when people know that they could get you know 4.5 to 5% on a treasury bill versus a bank account um then you know then did the fed not has the fed or the bond market not put investors at odds with deposit taking institutions even though I agree with you to a degree, yes. But if if I if I may see the positive in this, perhaps you're gonna see the banks work much harder in raising their interest on their deposits to entice clients to stay around. And perhaps well, that's not, the reason, right? Perhaps I mean, not buy that, the T bill. So yeah. this is gonna make banks, in my opinion, more honest going forward. To the extent that 
if you're going to sit with a bank and get a uh, a, a deposit uh, rate higher than the T-bills, and by the way, T-bills is a sophisticated context. The average John Doe person doesn't know what a T-bill is. So while we, can, while we right. can have a nice conversation about T-bills, the average yeah. John Doe person doesn't even know what let, that is. They're looking at a bank alone, deposit and income on a bank account, including myself let alone a, and my bank. Let alone a money market fund, right? Exactly. So, I, I'm not yeah. buying with my free cash. I'm not buying T-bills. I'm still owning my bank's um, savings account. Yeah. I'm hoping they bought the T-bills and not something crazy, but... The, well, the there, there's a whole degree. There's a whole degree of separation involved in that. Exactly. I mean, if you, you know, accessibility being one of them. Exactly. So yeah. banks will compete in raising their deposit rates to attract high quality assets. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And the larger banks will be able to do it better than smaller banks. That's also true. But that reduces their net interest margin. Correct. It does. Yeah. Which means earnings yeah. for banks could get a little bit volatile. And our AI systems have been showing for the last six months that bank earnings don't look good. Well, and we just saw, we, I'm starting to see some reporting from banks now, right, of, of uh, decline in earnings. Canadian banks in general look significantly more stable because we have yeah. a large repository of global banks around the world. Uh, relatively speaking, Canadian banks are much, much, much more stable. But when you see some of the predictions from AI with respect to one-year forward earnings estimates or even dividend risk uh, probabilities, you could clearly see a spread between, say, mid-cap, small-cap banks and large-cap banks around the world, clearly. Interesting. So, Shri, how does, uh, how does a recession affect the demand for near-term predictable and attractively priced cash flows? And why does this make dividend payers valuable? Well, I would say recession amid persistent high inflation is deemed a stagflation. The mistake the market is making is I think it feels that the Fed can engineer a soft landing. However, the principal components of inflation are what? Supply chain driven problems. Labor costs, persistent high labor costs because of lack of participation in the labor force. Remember, I can't get a 25-year-old to come to work, and I'm trying my hardest to keep a 60-year-old from leaving work and retiring. <laughs> That's my job yeah. today. So I got both the tails leaving or not being there. So I'm the sandwich generation at 53 years old trying to keep yeah. my talent alive. That means more labor costs and persistent labor costs. So when you're looking at the global geopolitical problems with the Ukrainian war and everything else, and now the China aspect looming like a big, big albatross right now, which leads to supply chain disruptions, labor cost driven. These are all very structural in nature. A mere rate increase here and there will not be enough to suffice a change. So it's going to take some time for structural issues to sort themselves out. In the meantime, you're going to see volatility in the market, and you're going to see turbulent periods. And so you have to be very careful right now where beta and alpha should be separated, where simply buying the market means you're buying volatility. When you buy active management or you're buying responses to the duration and credit through active management, you probably are going to be far better off than just going passive right now. So these are changes that the average person might feel but does not comprehend yet. And that's how I see the recession, if it does come around, uh, which I think is, in our opinion, uh, Europe is already in a recession from an earnings standpoint. And when it comes to United States, the earnings cycle is starting to slow down or starting to decelerate at a reasonable pace. So when you put all that together, I think my thesis might play out. Interesting. I, 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 um, I think you know, some, some in the, some in, in markets, some people in markets are of the sort of simpler opinion that a recession would lead to lower interest rates. And therefore, you know, that would benefit higher duration investments. To again. a degree. Yeah. Mathematically. Right. Yes. Structurally. Yeah. No. Well, that's, that's the short-sightedness, right? Correct. Is, is that, yeah. So we're we're on the subject of of you know events and you know systemic events or or 
systemic, you know, sorry, not systemic events, but turbulence, uh, a little bit of chaos this week. Um, when these kinds of, of disruptions happen, how do you, how do you, and like, how do you instruct or how do you teach your AI to recognize these types of situations? Um, and, and, and I guess the, maybe the relevant question is, do you want to? Mm. Well, or to what degree, yeah. to what degree do you want Good to, question. do you want to teach your AI to recognize, you know, something like SVB or, or a rise in, in systemic problems? Is it possible? It's possible. So if I give you an anecdotal response, um, our, our dividend strategy um, has had a track record since inception of having zero dividend cuts, and we have been running it for 15 years. So when, uh, so we had no dividend cuts during subprime because during subprime, most dividend managers had about 40 to 50% in banks. Our systems allowed us to exit banks. So we were a non-bank dividend strategy during subprime. If you could wrap your head around that. During COVID, <laughs> Impressive. We, during COVID yeah. we had zero dividend cuts. So people ask the same question here. Is, there, is your model learning from COVID? The answer is no, because COVID was not predicted. You have to train the model on COVID data. So today, has the model learned from COVID data? The answer is yes. We have trained the model on the disintermediated responses of the market to the COVID crisis. But during COVID, it learned from the subprime response. So the source of the problem cannot be predicted, but the reaction to the problem is much more predictable and consistent across multiple regimes. So regime detection, in my opinion as a data scientist, is very hard to do in a very explicit way. But implied shifts are much more manageable. So what we do is we feed macro data into the model in the form of features. So all the lead economic indicators we feed into the market. What happens is the stocks tend to react and interact with these features to develop patterns of behavior. So stocks that are highly sensitive to rising rates, some are very less sensitive to rising rates, some are very high sensitive to uh, rising oil prices, some are less, some are very highly sensitive to manufacturing order PMI cycles, some are not. S some are uh, highly uh, sensitive to the steepening of the yield curve, while some are not. These kind of things have to be thought or trained uh, into the model. And once they're trained and they develop patterns and behavior recognition, then when you feed it today's data, whether it's SVB or whatever, the model can use that training data to do what? Infer. In, infer. <laughs> so Thank you. that's what yeah. we are building um, in our model context is to allow the model to infer and it can infer from the past uh, to predict the future with a degree of certainty. And we use uh, probability estimates. Um, in some cases, we use random forest techniques where we're using the average of 2,000 or 2,500 predictions because we do right. not rely on one prediction. We are doing 2,000 predictions and taking the average. So there are different techniques of supervised machine learning for certain features and certain parameters for decision-making. And there are certain very advanced deep learning type responses we use for a market-neutral hedge fund where we're actually labeling stocks as when to short and when to go long. So there are a lot of complex variables where we start with machine learning all the way to uh, deep learning, and now you got regenerative AI, which I have not really ventured into just yet. But perhaps someday my all-star data science team might come back to me and say, Shri, um, you're an old hag at this. Let me get to take a crack at it. And I'll be like, go for it. So you're you're not yet at the stage at the stage where you would consider adding regenerative AI to your processes yet. No, we are not. Yeah, it's 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 a whole other ball game, right? You you it's hard. Yeah. You, if I if I use ChatGPT as a subscription enterprise subscription and use it to make decisions, it to a degree it's a black box. And in the world of investment management, where we have fiduciary responsibilities, I rather build a glass box than a black box. And so, yeah. us being data scientists, our feature engineering, feature selection, we have an innate understanding of how our artificial intelligence frameworks work. So as we 
do our academic research and our readings and theory as to how regenerative AI works, uh, we could probably uh, start to learn from it. One of the things that we do very unique, which is kind of similar to regenerative AI in the sense regenerative AI uses transformers um, in its uh, deep learning framework, that it uses ridiculously multiple layers of neural nets. Um, and any kind of data coming out of the neural net is very abstract in nature. And regenerative AI can create recognitions of vectors and clusters of words and all that stuff. So it's very abstract in nature. We are now actually feeding the output of one AI model into another AI model. So one AI model is learning from the predictions of another model. So things have progressed quite significantly yeah. in the world of artificial intelligence. Um, it's somewhat proprietary, but we're having a chat conversation. Hopefully people can get some knowledge out of these things. But that's what um, transformers and abstract learning is all about. It's how the human brain reacts to certain relationships of, between abstract data sets. And we're doing that right now. But as far as chat GPT goes, uh, the size of data, you know how many uh, GPUs we use? We use about three to four GPUs. You know how many GPUs uh, chat GPT uses? How many? Over 100,000 per <laughs> query. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. It is. Wait, I, I can see where, where you don't want to introduce uh, what's potentially a, a, you know, I mean, maybe I'm not using the right term, but it's a wild card. It's too many wild cards into your process by, by in, if you were to try and do something like introducing regenerative AI. But thank God you're not, because it's 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 uh, it, it you know your 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 such your AI is by design. Yeah, and that's a large language yeah. model. So I'm uh, the new yeah. sentiment data specialist might use that to create better perspective or projected sentiment for a stock. So not only are they telling you what the sentiment is today based on news media, they might be able to tell you that we could regenerate the sentiment that's going to happen tomorrow or the next minute based on it. That could happen in the future, and that could be a very yeah. positive feature set for us because we currently use new sentiment data as a momentum feature set because we don't read anything. The machine reads for all of us. So can sentiment become more intelligent with chat GPT and regenerative AI? My opinion is yes, but that's not our domain. We actually subscribe yeah, to that yeah. data, so hopefully the data scientists who are doing that for us <laughs> will work on that. <laughs> Speaking of sentiment, um, what are your expectations for market volatility or equity markets for 2023? Um, how do you how do you see things unfolding for the balance of the year and and uh, and even ahead? I have mentioned in the recent past that the only macro risk I worry about is liquidity and credit risk. If inflation stays sticky, impact on technology in general, I think, goes into warp speed. Technology is going to go into warp speed if inflation stays sticky because productivity and labor force participation will create opportunities in tech that me and you haven't really comprehended yet. Human and robot interaction becomes a norm much earlier than one expects. It already has become. Right. Market wall stays elevated, but not in any panic state, in my opinion. <clears throat> the four-letter word hope, which are H stands for housing, O stands for orders, P stands for profitability, and E stands for employment are all shifting, and an economic bottom, at least in our opinion, is not in sight yet. So there's still more fog on the road. So don't speed up. Slow down. That's the overall expectation I have for market volatility in 2023. So there are a lot of nuggets here I put in uh, that I will not explain. <laughs> I love it. Further. I love it. No, that's but, that's perfect. That's, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think it's prudent to be cautious. Shri, thank you so much. I, I uh, you know, love talking to you. We love you. Uh, it's always, you know, a mind-blowing conversation with you. Uh, you've always got, you know, a world of of uh, intelligence to to share with us, and um, you know, you have you're doing so much. So I, I think I think if anybody actually got to to see what you're actually doing, I know that's proprietary, but you know, I, I, it's mind blowing to, to me. It's mind blowing. I, I think what you're doing with you know with investing is is uh, 
you know, on a, on another scale that, that, and it's not something you just, you know, you didn't just start it this year. This is something you've been doing for your whole career, um, working your way up to this. And then, and then, uh, you know, since, since 2018, which, you know, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but that's five full years of full implementation Correct. that you worked up to in the previous decade of your career or decades. And, and, um, I, uh, it's astonishing is all I can say. I, I think that, that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're a pioneer in, in AI. I think that's why I was excited, you know, particularly excited to talk to you about AI today because it's been such a big year for, for that. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I imagine it's going to be, it's making, um, you know, it's making the work that you do even more, uh, profoundly satisfying gratifying. Thank you very much. These are exciting times indeed. Thank you, Shri. Thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time and, and your thought. Thank you very much. <laughs>